Thank you, Amber. I really appreciate the music and your cheerful smile. Amen. Yeah. I'm just hoping that someday you will use all 88 keys. <laughs> but we're just blessed with, with Amber's music. Um, and it, I, I'm just really proud, and I'm going to embarrass you, but I'm proud to, to see you flourish and get so comfortable that you really are just putting yourself in there with all the flourishes. I sit back and listen, so I'm glad you're enjoying it. I'd like to welcome you to Grace Reformed Baptist Church, and I've only been here a few years, but I love the way that we're, we have grown closer together as family. We're watching kids grow up. You're watching me get older and, uh, and better. Not wiser, but just better. Uh, but just the sense of family we have, and that's something special. So if you're ever on vacation and you go to a church where you don't know anybody, just do a, a check to see where you feel like you're family and where you're just a, a pew sitter. So we're family. And with that, if you want to be on the family's email list to get uh, prayer announcements and things like that, give me your email. Uh, we won't market anything to you, but I want you to be part of the conversation and the communication. And one communication is the Hargraves are expecting a boy in December. Surprise, Ethan! Uh, and the church crib shower will be downstairs next Sunday and the 21st. There's a baby cradle set up in the foyer downstairs near the coffee where any gifts or diapers, size one and up, wipes or gift cards may be placed. And the Hargraves appreciate your prayers for a safe and healthy deliver for Elena and little baby Andrew. One can hope. I tried that with the Nelsons, and they came up with other names. So, And my boy's not married yet, so i got a long way to go. Um, but in the bulletin itself, one important announcement is there's an open house for Caroline Layton next week. And please RSVP to Catherine for Thanksgiving dinner so we know how many people are coming. And you can read the rest of them. Yeah, on that Thanksgiving dinner, we'll have it here. If you haven't been a part of it, I'm going to fry some turkeys in air. So uh, they're very good. Um, yeah, I know it sounds weird, although today I guess most people know how that's done. But nevertheless, I'm going to fry up the turkeys, and, and uh, we'll have it before our uh, Thanksgiving uh, proper day on Thursday. We'll have it on the Sunday lunch here. So um, let me know so we know how many turkeys to fry up. And I uh, hope you can join us for that Thanksgiving fellowship lunch here at the church. And I think, folks, you guys will bring the sides, as far as I remember, and, and I'll bring the turkey. So, in any case, today um, we are going to celebrate Christ and commune with him. And I'm going to give you a moment to prepare yourself now. We're going to sing in just a minute about Jesus Christ being a friend to sinners. He's a greater friend than you could imagine. 
He will forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Reflecting on your sin and its consequence, that's a great truth for us to remember today. So I'm going to give you a moment to prepare your heart. Scripture tells us here in 1 Corinthians 11 that we should examine our heart, each one himself, and then eat. So it isn't that you have to atone for your sin. Christ already has. Just confess him. He's faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The way we will receive communion today is we'll come forward like we have been doing recently. We won't pass it out. You come forward, get both the bread and the cup, return back to your seat, and, and then wait. Wait for one another. Interestingly enough, uh, that phrase is actually used in 1 Corinthians 11. It says, when you come together, wait for one another. And, and so that's a good way to demonstrate this as well. And by the way, uh, repeatedly in this text, I'll let you look it up. It says, when you come together, when you come together, and when you come together. This is an important aspect of worship in Christ's church. The church, it is described as the assembly of the saints. And this is why it's so significantly important. We're thankful that we are able to gather together. So many of our other brothers and sisters today are hindered in many ways from doing this very thing that Christ has called us to do and to commemorate our gathering together in remembrance of Christ. I'll give you a moment privately where you're at to examine yourself, confess sin, be prepared to receive communion with Christ. And by the way, if you're visiting with us, if you do not have to be a member of this church to participate in communion with Christ. You do need to be a member of the body of Christ. So if you have little ones with you, they, they can observe it and use this as an object lesson to teach them as well. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. I'll let you pray privately, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, we come together as your children. We're thankful for the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, a complete redemption. Don't require us to say certain incantations and to do certain activities to somehow merit your favor. It has been lavished upon us by the grace that is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I pray, Father, that we would be reminded of this great truth, that Christ would certainly be exalted today. And as we gather together as your saints, made saints, holy, set apart, not by deeds that we have done, but because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, 
who has adopted us into the family, and now we can call you Father because we are one with the Beloved. I pray the level of love you have for each one in Christ would be very comforting to us as your children. Give us great faith, courage, conviction of these very truths. I pray, Father, today as we celebrate and proclaim the Lord's death till he comes, may it be something on our mind quite often. May it spill over in our conversations day to day. As you bring different people perhaps in our path that we need to hear about the very words of life in Christ and Christ alone. I pray this would be a personal rejoicing and joy in each one of our hearts and again that it would overflow indeed to others. Bless us this day and um, as we attempt to praise and exalt your holy name, I pray that you would receive it and that we would hear indeed from you this day. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's stand together and take our hymn books and turn to number 156 and sing, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke 5.
receive communion, Jesus blessed, representing his body and the cup, the blood of Christ. Jerry, would you say the blessing? Amen. At this point, we'll go ahead and get you to receive both elements and then return back to your seat. Let's start on this side here.
One of the practices of the early church when they came together was to receive this communion with Christ. It's a regular part of their worship. I think it's good to be reminded of these things on a regular basis. One of the difficult things is that then it could be routine and ritual, although we do sing, pray, and preach on a regular basis. This is a significant ordinance that Christ has called the church to do. And it is helpful to stop and think and reflect about the great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And as I mentioned, this bread, it, it just re represents the very life of Jesus Christ. It's been a privilege and a joy for me to go through the Gospel of John in particular. I hope you're enjoying thinking about the very life of Christ. And as we'll be reminded of today, even the pagan governor, Pilate, has to conclude not guilty. I don't think I would stand at the charge, right? There is no guilt in him. And it is because Christ is not guilty that will be your answer before the very throne of God. In Christ, there's no condemnation in him. You're not guilty anymore in Christ. Christ said, receive this bread in remembrance of me. We have talked about, and we will mention again, Prince, the power of the air, as Paul describes him in the book of Ephesians, the devil. The devil is very powerful, but he compares nothing to Christ. And Christ demonstrated that taking him full on. But the devil will make accusations, not against Christ. There's no guilt in him. But he will then accuse you because you have actually sinned. And what will be of that? Surely that would bring condemnation to you. Christ actually died. The wages of sin, you understand, is death. God just doesn't sweep that under the rug and forget about it. He can't. And be holy and just. He actually imputes your sin on Christ's body and he actually did die. He actually was buried fact that he rose again in triumph means that if you're in Christ, your sins are atoned for. Everyone. Buried. Completely paid for. And triumphantly to be raised in newness of life in Christ Jesus. Jesus would call his church to receive the remembrance of his atonement for your sin. Remember him now. Let's all rise now and sing about that redemption that is in Christ our Lord. 
151, I'm sorry, 280 in your hymn book, Redeemed, How I Love to Proclaim.
Good morning. Today's scripture reading is a responsive reading. The response part is found in your worship folder. If you'll open that up, I'll be reading Psalm 80, and I'll do that in two sections. You'll be reading two portions of Jesus' comforting, encouraging words in response. Psalm 80 is found on page 491. If you want to follow what I'll be reading, I'll begin with the first seven verses. Then you will read. The congregation will read from John 10. I will finish Psalm 80, verses 8 through 19. And then you, the congregation, will finish our scripture reading this morning with your response. Psalm 80 is a heartfelt prayer of God's people who were crying out to their sovereign Lord to remember their covenant relationship and to rescue them from the evil times that they are in. This is a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. Psalm 80, verses 80, excuse me, verses 1 through 7. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Verse 7, restore us, O God of hosts, that your face shine that we may be saved. Continuing with Psalm 80, verses 8 through 19. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Verse 19, restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. 
Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your only son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is our good shepherd. We know that he will lead us beside the still waters and restore our souls. We know he has prepared an eternal home in your presence for your own adopted children. Father, we thank you that you are the vine dresser and that Jesus is the true vine of which we are branches. Father, we know that we are sinners saved by grace. We confess we often grieve and quench the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so often we turn our eyes from our Lord Jesus Christ, Savior, Redeemer, and King. According to your word, forgive and cleanse us and control us by God the Holy Spirit. Calm our wavering hearts and our minds in these troubled times. Gather us under your wings that we may rest in your sovereignty, even at this moment. We thank you. We praise you, O Lord God. We thank you for your common grace over us all. We thank you more for your particular grace for the sheep of your pasture. We pray now that you will bless this day's offering to your purposes. Continue to bless our worship service. And especially I pray that you will bless and teach us through the faithful preaching of your infallible, inerrant word. Your word is truth. Amen.
Amen. Thank you, Blake, Amber, and Church. Let's see Christ in his word. We're returning back to John chapter 18 today. John 18. We're going to focus on the kingdom of Christ. This chapter, chapter 18 in John, deals with, of course, the betrayal, arrest, and trials too. Trial before the Jews, that would be the Jewish leaders, and trial before the Roman government with Pilate. And thus far as we've gone through this, we've seen that Jesus has been in complete control. He is, after all, King of kings and Lord of lords. The mob aligned against him were permitted to take him. Jesus submitted to them willingly, or otherwise they could not. Jesus stood before a corrupt Jewish court who tried to indict him for a crime worthy of death if they can figure out one to pin on him. They just want to kill him. In so doing, they demonstrate their sinfulness, which of course highlights the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. The only charge that they actually find, one that sticks, is the claim that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It is a true claim. They don't bother to evaluate the merits of it at all. They're just looking for a reason to put him to death. They pounce on this opportunity, I remind you, and declare him to be a blasphemer, worthy of death under Jewish law. But rather than pick up stones to stone him as their law demanded and as they have done, previously and after this event. They try instead to get Rome to execute Jesus. Now we can sit here and speculate of all the reasons why, but all of those would be penultimate. The ultimate reason is clear. It's in our text, verse 32 of John 18. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken. To show by what kind of death he was going to die. You see, Jesus was in complete control. Even, not only the timing of his death, but the very manner of it. He is vindicated by what he had said. And I'll just stop and here give you an obvious application. All that Jesus teaches. All that Jesus prophesies about that which would be in the future. And should I say, all that Jesus promises is true. Every word of it. You have never heard from anyone like him before. Jesus is described by John in, John, in Revelation 19 as what? The faithful and true. And I hope you get a enhanced vision of Christ in that regard as he's demonstrated here, faithful 
and true. The Roman trial before Pilate begins in verse 28 of our text. And we have looked at that trial. We have reviewed it. And unlike the Jewish trial, which they violated every norm that they had, the Roman trial proceeded correctly according to the norms that they had set up. And understandably then, the verdict is in by this pagan ruler. He declares not guilty. Rome didn't care about the charge of blasphemy. It wasn't really that important to them. So the Jews, instead of charging him with what they charged Jesus with, instead they twisted a bit and say that Jesus claimed to be a king and therefore is a threat to Roman rule. Pilate then asked Jesus, verse 33, are you the king of the Jews? And as we've discussed, a simple yes, no would not do here because both Rome and this Jewish court, both of them have a misunderstanding of the king and his kingdom. He alludes to that misunderstanding. And in verse 36, and that's the key text, I, I think I'll be on this this week and next. We'll focus more on the king this week and next week the kingdom itself. But they are one, they are tied to one another. And notice verse 36, Jesus declares this phrase, my kingdom is not of this world. He's giving the defense, if you will, in this trial and before this Roman governor. His response to him is simply to say, it's a different kingdom. I am a king, and the kingdom is not how you imagine. He gives a lot of teaching, by the way, Jesus does, on the kingdom. You can find it quite a bit in the Gospels, and we will get to that in due time. But I want us to first consider really this immediate context and focus really our attention today mostly on the king, the king of that very kingdom. And so let's read it in its context beginning with verse 33. When Pilate comes back in after hearing this accusation by the Jews, verse 33, Pilate enters into his headquarters again. And he called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this, the world. And then Pilate said to him, so, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am king. And for this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world 
to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Let us pray. Father, I pray that, yes, we would be illuminated in our hearts and minds to see the glorious nature of this king, our king. I pray for anyone who truly from the heart has not confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. Would you use the proclamation of your word to affect that very response? For those of us who cherish the king, may our cherishing be increased. May Christ be glorified indeed in the proclamation of his word. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. I wanted to center on this answer that Jesus had given concerning his kingdom. To some degree, I think it is not only misunderstood by, of course, the Jews at that time and Rome, but perhaps to some degree to even us today. Jesus demonstrates the uniqueness of his kingdom here to, before Pilate to let him know we're not a bunch of insurrectionists. He says that his servants did not put up a fight and would not. Of course, Peter withstanding, who attempted that, and Christ said no. And Christ resolved the problem that Peter caused. But his servants weren't about an insurrection and a battle in that way. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king of righteousness. And his kingdom, if you want to understand it, in a word, is truth. He says, notice verse 37, that he has come into the world. This, as it unfolds here, you understand this world is the world system. And you can think of it as a kingdom as well. He comes into the world. And why? He is going to bear witness to the truth. That, that is what characterizes this kingdom of Christ. It is unique and different from the world. Of course, Pilate hears what he's saying. He's saying he, he's not some sort of king to set up against an insurrection against Rome. He is talking about a kingdom of truth. And to that, Pilate sees him, I think, in his response here, what is truth just as some sort of idealist concerned about spiritual ideals rather than some sort of material threat to Rome. And so he declares Jesus then not guilty 
of being some sort of insurrectionist and goes out and tells the crowd that. But interestingly enough, in this text here, we find that what Pilate actually fails to do and what the Jews there fail to do and the rest of the crowd that is among them They fail, and that is demonstrated, by the way, when they get a choice to choose, they choose Barabbas, a robber, over the king of kings, the lord of lords. And again, examine your own heart. Who would you choose? Or better yet, who are you choosing? That is a fatal flaw for them. It's obvious. But it can be a fatal flaw for us in this day as well. As I've mentioned, Jesus Christ is the Lord of Lords. He is uniquely truth incarnate. God, very God in flesh. This day was spoken of and this person spoken of throughout the Old Testament A notable one, particularly at this time of year, as we begin to commemorate what we call Christmas, or the incarnation of Christ this season, 700 years prior to this very event, Jesus Christ standing before the Jewish nation, standing before Pilate and all the people, Isaiah wrote this, For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's who this man is. Of his increase of his government and of peace, this is speaking of his kingdom, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and evermore. It is the zeal of the Lord that will do this. Can I tell you, this is who Christ is and this is a summary really of his kingdom. Justice, righteousness, truth, faithfulness. From Isaiah's prophecy, which is true, this king, this very king that will come, this son that will be born, the son that is given to us is indeed God. This is not any king. This is no comparison to any king. He is God incarnate. He will reign how? He will reign in truth, He will reign in righteousness. And how long will his kingdom endure? By the way, most of these kingdoms, they come and go, don't they? Right? Pick up a history book. Can I tell you a kingdom that will never end? That is Christ's kingdom. Those standing before him that very day rejected that king and that kingdom. It's it's unbelievable in many respects. It isn't that Jesus didn't demonstrate it. It isn't that no one could convict him of anything, any wrong statement that he made, any lie that he might have said, any deception that he might have done. 
Even the pagan ruler, governor, pilot has to say he is not guilty. I find no fault in him because he is truth incarnate. But they didn't receive the truth. They rejected this very king. They chose a robber instead and crucified this one. Jesus tells us why everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. I just proclaim the king. And if you're of the truth, you will hear him and see him and treasure him. The facts line up, but it will take a miracle of God's grace to change your deceived heart. To truly believe here, listen to his voice, it's, it's a way of describing another way we would call it to believe. To believe what? To believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. To say that he is the Lord is to say that he is king. It's the same thing. To say that he is the sovereign one. This listening to his voice isn't just a, an acknowledgement of a theological fact. This is something beyond that. It is true. That is true. But it's beyond that. This is something personal from the heart. Something that we can't manufacture. Something we can't make happen. I mean, think about affection in and of itself. How, how, how does that come about? I, we don't really know. But it's from the heart where you have care and concern. And ultimately here, a love for a sovereign Lord. Listening in the sense of obedience to him. Confidence in him. Faith in him. Faith personally in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I don't know what made me think about it in my study, but I enjoyed it, and maybe you will too. There was an old preacher, I guess he died about 20 years ago. He was pretty famous in the 60s for a sermon he used to preach during all the commotion of the civil rights back then. He preached about an hour-long sermon on the beauty of Christ, and he closed it by talking in a personal way about his king. Maybe you've heard it. The guy's name was Shadrach Meshach Lockeridge. What a name. He deserved to be a preacher, didn't he? With a name like that. Most people call him S.M. He closed his sermon out different ways. You can find many renditions, and I certainly can't keep up with his cadence and style of preaching. That isn't my intent. But what I would like you to do is just to listen to what I say and think I'll be reading what he wrote and closed the sermon with. But I want you to think about that person that is standing now historically on before Pilate and before the Jews, and before the crowd. He's king. And he's my king. Lockhart would say this. The Bible says my 
king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's lord of lords. That's my king. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define him, his, can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomena that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He is God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He is the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior. And he asks, I wonder, do you know him? He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway to glory. Do you know him? He's the life... His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. And his reign is righteous. His yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invisible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't outlive him. You can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yes, that's my king. Is he yours? Beloved, you can't understand the kingdom of God if you don't know the king. Verse 37. Pilate questions him about his kingship. And as we mentioned here in verse, the end of verse 37, everyone who is of the truth is what he describes. Everyone that is of the truth hears him. He's describing of the truth, that is, those that have been redeemed, regenerate, 
or saved. Born again. A lot of terminologies, but notice this. They then become of the truth. That is his kingdom. It is of the truth. I've already kind of alluded to it and hopefully you've seen it in the text. I'd argue there's really two kingdoms, if you will. Jesus here in this text declares that he has my kingdom. My kingdom. It is not of this world and it is not from this world. There is a kingdom here described as the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Christ. My kingdom, he says. And then you have the kingdom of the world. There are two realms. That's what we mean by kingdom. Spheres or domain. Christ's kingdom is described as the truth. And those that are in the that kingdom are then of the truth. The other kingdom, the kingdom described as the world or the world system, is false. I know many don't like the idea of black and white categories today. They like to see a lot of shades of gray. I'm here to tell you there are only two. The truth and error. Jesus explains his kingdom. It is not of this world system. There is no imperfection in it, only perfection. No falsehood, only truth. As I mentioned, the word kingdom itself, if you look it up, it relates to the word king. It just simply means domain, a realm or sphere of somebody's authority, and we naturally, when we hear the word kingdom, we might associate it with a geographical location or boundary. But it's beyond that, and it must be beyond that. The kingdom itself is ultimately associated with the one who is king. That is, the one who is in authority. It is, the kingdom is intrinsically linked then to the king and his rule, his reign, his sovereignty. That's what Jesus is getting at here. He is king. And again, our confession is Jesus is Lord, right? He is the absolute sovereign over all. He is my king. He is my sovereign. He is distinct from the kings and the kingdoms then of this world. Here's a good way to characterize it, and I'm not saying all that it is. I hope you enjoyed S.M. Lockridge's statement because he left a lot out. It's more than that, but that's just a taste. But if I gave it some biblical categories, particularly where we're at in the text, and I invite you to turn back to the first chapter of John Jesus' kingdom, I'm just trying to simplify it to some degree, it's synonymous with truth, light, and life. By contrast, the kingdom of the world, the world system, the devil, is characterized by the opposite, 
lies, darkness, and death. You'll see that played out in how the, as we've already mentioned, both the Jews and Rome reacts. Even though Pilate says, you're not guilty, we know the rest of the story. He still sends them to be executed, demonstrating he is about a lie, about darkness and death. You'll see that played out in that kingdom. Notice how John <clears throat> phrases this idea here about truth, light, and life being the kingdom descriptors of the kingdom of Christ in John chapter 1 and verse 9. Talk, referring to Jesus, he's the, the true light that gives light to everyone. He's coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory the glory as of the only Son from the Father, what? Full of grace and truth. The true light then comes into this worldly kingdom, if you will, bringing the kingdom of darkness, lies, and death, bringing what? Truth, light, and life. And let me add to this, Jesus does speak of his kingdom, and then he speaks of the kingdom of the world, if you will. However, we have to recognize that he is an authority over it all. It isn't as if this is some separate power, the power of darkness, lies, and death, that are out there that are not also subject to the very king. Remember, we say Jesus is the what? King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is sovereign over it all, even that. Although his kingdom is uniquely characterized by who he is, right? It doesn't mean that he has necessarily abdicated the throne of his authority over all. In fact, if he didn't, everything would fall apart. Jesus specifically says he is not of and he is not from, but he is the sovereign creator of all creation, as this text very much says. He was in this world, and this world was made by him. But what's the problem with the world in that sense of a kingdom? They didn't know him. That's the problem. And it's demonstrated here. Jesus Christ has all authority, sovereign rule over all. Satan's rebellion and mankind's rebellion has not and will not and cannot ever be successful in overthrowing this very king. 
Jesus Christ is the king and ultimate authority always over even the domain of this creation, which is dark and desolate. Look a little, go backwards in our text and see how this begins in describing Jesus as the word of God. Verse 3 in chapter 1. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Notice, again, how these analogies are used a lot. This really helps us to think more concretely about who Christ is. Here again, light and life are topics that are repeated because this is characteristic of who Jesus Christ is and therefore characteristic of his very kingdom. Jesus Christ creates all things and sustains all things. He is the sustainer of life. The only reason the earth continues even now to this day is because of this very one, this King of Kings, this Jesus Christ, which, by the way, historically, in our text, right, he's standing before them. This is who he is. He is the radiance of truth. The phrase, this Light shines, and the darkness has not overcome it, has a double meaning intended here in the Gospel of John. John does this quite a bit in, in it, and I think this is because this is how Christ taught. Catalabano is the word here for overcome. It has two <coughs> concepts, and both are true. By analogy, you can think of a dark room turning on a flashlight, is the darkness ever going to stop that flashlight? No, it can't. Immediately there's light. And depending how brilliant that light is, everything is lit up, right? Now, imagine the most brightest light that would be Jesus Christ. Is there any darkness that would remain in his presence? It can't overcome it. But the word also has the idea of comprehend. It can't overcome, but it also can't comprehend it. I'll I'll put it this way. Let's say you're in that same room where the lights were turned on. The lights overcome the darkness. But what if you're in there and you don't have any eyes to see? See? You, you, You can't. Because you don't have a receptor to see. That's the problem. That's the problem with this domain, this world system. It resides in darkness, metaphorically, and there are no receptors to see this very light. That's the problem with this domain. You can tell the truth, and they believe a lie. Isn't it frustrating sometimes trying to evangelize, if you will, to share the good news, the gospel, and they are so committed just to believe a lie. They just start making up stuff. 
Because they are beholden to a lie. They would rather have the lie than the truth. Even if the facts will not line up with what they say. We're looking at that in our ministry training hour with Paul. A very bright and brilliant man who ignores the very facts. Because he lies in darkness without any eyes to see. This condition, this dark condition, exists because of a curse. A curse in this world system that was put on by God Almighty. If you're familiar with it, you can just listen if you want. If you want to turn to it, um, I need to move a little quicker, sorry. I get excited occasionally. But it's in Genesis chapter 3. That's the text that talks about the fall. But I, I just want to make this point. Demonstrating though that Christ is in authority over all creation. Even the fallen world. You understand it is God himself who cursed this earth. In a response to the rebellion. This curse just didn't happen in and of itself. It is the very judgment of God. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14, here God says directly to the devil, it's called the serpent here, because you have done this, you are cursed. Drop down to verse 16, and then to the woman, Essentially the same thing, and he demonstrates some of that curse, which would be pain, suffering. To Adam, verse 17, because you've done this, you're going to be cursed as well. And beyond that, the ground then is cursed because of you. Death will come about, verse 19, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This domain then is, is rightly cursed and justly cursed by God because of rebellion. Mankind justly deserves death. Anything short of that, postponed in of it, if you will, is because of God's grace, either temporal or eternal. But I just wanted to point out the fact that the devil is cursed. He is not in authority. He's subject to Christ. I would warn you also, you're no match for him. So don't go trying to assault the devil. But on the other hand, he's no match for Christ. Just as darkness is no match for light. Jesus would, the devil we know has to work under the authority of God to do anything. Remember the story of Job where he asked permission to tempt Job. He wanted to do it because of the evil of his heart. God had his purposes for it. In the New Testament, you remember here really what we're dealing with, with Peter in particular. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus warns Peter that Satan has demanded to have you, and by the way, that you is plural, he has demanded to have all of you, should I say all of humanity? Yes, applicable. 
He has demanded to have every single one of you that he might sift you like wheat, that is, destroy you. And then Jesus steps up in 22:32. he says, But I have prayed for you, singular, he has prayed for Peter, that your faith will not fail. That's the distinction between Judas and Peter. Christ prayed for him. He was of the truth. Luther called the devil God's devil because... The devil is not outside of the sovereign decree and authority of King Jesus. He's called the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience in Ephesians chapter 2. Not because he's some ruler on a throne, if you will, that is in authority, It is because it is a reference to his actions and activities. He is the leader of the lie. He is the leader of what is false, what is not true. And the sons of disobedience are those that are then disobedient to who? To the Lord Jesus Christ and hence following this one as if he were their king. All mankind naturally follows the course of this world and thus are condemned, cursed by nature. The devil doesn't rule over the hearts of men. He doesn't rule over hell. He does attempt to lead people astray and further blinding them from seeing the glorious light of Christ. In this world, you have a kingdom of darkness, a kingdom of lies, deceit, treachery, injustice, pride, selfishness, greed, lust, and I can go on. What you need is the light of Christ. And Christ declares that his kingdom is not anything like that. His kingdom is light and life. It is distinct in that, in that sense. This judgment then will come upon this world and this ruler of this age will be cast out, John chapter 12, and it is this very event that will seal that on the cross. Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all kinds of men to myself. In this very act of defiance against the king, whether it's Pilate, the Jews, or the people choosing Barabbas, it all leads to the cross, which brings about judgment to all in rebellion against him. They are guilty. Most notably, judgment to the devil, the ruler of this world, if you will, who will be cast out. But it also means salvation to those that are drawn to him who will then be rescued from judgment. And can I say it one more time? Jesus Christ is king, the ruler over all things. He is ruler of all things and all people. Go back to our text in John 19. As Jesus reminds 
the ruler, the governor, Pilate, who thinks he's in charge of who is ultimately in charge. It is this very king, Jesus and his kingdom. In verse 10, Pilate's kind of challenging Jesus. You will not speak to me. Do you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Could I tell you that is how the kingdoms of this world think? They think they have authority to do whatever they want. Could I tell each and every one they have another person to whom they must submit? It is that King Jesus Christ. He is Lord whether they recognize it or not. And if they don't, they're just sealing their own fate, if you will, in the rebellion against him. Jesus, who by the way, they could not find any false thing he said. Here's what he said. Believe him. You, verse 11, would have no authority over me at all unless it was given to you from above. You see that? God is still sovereign over all, even this wicked system, even this wicked king. They are doing exactly what they want from their own perspective and their heart, and they think that they are in charge over everything, but don't miss it. King Jesus is still on the throne. He's on the throne right now. I get disheartened sometimes when the political winds blow in a certain direction, and maybe I smile a little bit when they blow in another. But you know what? I can smile all the time because Christ knows what he's doing. I don't. And I have to trust him, and I do trust him, because he is of the truth. He has a purpose for all things. We talked about in class there, Paul, again, sorry to bother you again, but it's a great class, about the problem of evil, right? Theodicy, we call it. You know the answer? God has a purpose in it. There's no purpose less evil. I know it's hard to deal with it. But one of the purposes is draw you to the, find the refuge in Christ, the one who does know what's going on. I don't think we can handle a very small part of, of what is actually going on. But God can take care of it. This very circumstance that we're talking about here, the most evil that ever occurred. Would you, would you agree? Crucifying the Lord of glory. God incarnate. Taking truth and, and crucifying him. Taking the light and trying to extinguish it. Taking the life and trying to bury it. I'll maybe finish with this. I had something else, but we'll pick it up next time. Go to Acts chapter 4. We'll finish on that. Acts chapter 4. Kind of like you see it. Here's the apostles. Peter in particular, restored by Christ. Christ has prayed for him, right? That his faith wouldn't fail and it doesn't. He returns and he strengthens his brothers. And here's one of the strengthening is just his preaching. He preaches and calls people to repent and believe. John and Peter are thrown into prison for preaching that very gospel. 
they're <coughs> released and they explain to the church what's going on. In chapter 4, verse, I'll pick up at verse 24. When the church hears what God's doing, they lifted up their voices together, I'm at 424, to God and said, Sovereign Lord. You see the king aspect? and it's king. They recognize, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? That's what's going on there in this trial. Your servant said, why do they plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The greatest evil that could ever happen is this very thing. You know the rest of the story. By it brings about judgment to those who reject Christ and blessing to those who receive him. Jesus is sovereign Lord of all. His kingdom is truth light and life. And the question is, are you of the truth? Are you of the light? Are you of the life? And I just plead and beg for you to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Recognize him as not a king, but my king. Let us pray. Father, we're thankful that you are merciful and gracious, really, to all. In particular, this crowd that stood before your anointed one, blaspheming him and putting him to great shame. But we know he bore the consequences of my sin. I should be humiliated suffer, die. And if so, I would not have the righteous character of a holy one. I would be eternally in corruption and judgment. But I praise your holy name for Jesus Christ, who is my King and my Lord. I pray for myself and your people that we would continually pursue the truth and the light and the life of Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray, amen. Beloved, take a moment now to think and ponder on these things. If you have something to confess to him, confess it to me. You can go directly to God the Father through Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit.
take a moment privately where you're at. Seven, seven. And if you can't play it, Andy will lead us. Two, seven, seven. You got that? No. All right. Two, seventy-seven. You guys help me and Andy out. Let's stand together. I'll put Caroline up here to help me get the right note to start. You help me out. God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, now equip you with everything good to do his will, and work in you that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen and amen. You're dismissed. <laughs>